If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. You can put your finger there in case I get to the text. Don't you remember, don't you remember those old-timey preachers who used to say things like that? When you get there, I'll give me your eyes and we'll uh, continue. I desire to very to do to to do two very opposite things tonight. Let me say that again. I desire to do two very opposite things tonight. I desire, first of all, to speak on the subject of Cameron, the greatest need. And I entire and I intend to do it in as simplest of forms as possible. The greatest need. Now the title of the message, The Greatest Need, is to cause a little confusion among the ranks. Because everybody in this building understands clearly that the greatest need of mankind is a relationship with Jesus. Could I get an amen? amen? To get a relationship with Jesus, to be saved, and to have heaven as their home. Because without Jesus, no one has a relationship to the Father and no one enters heaven and only hell awaits for them. And this is the broad view for humanity. That said, what I want to do tonight is I want to tighten our focus a little bit. I want to tighten our focus from humanity to the greatest need of the local church, particularly the American church. And then I want to tighten the tighten the focus a little bit further. It's not going to be on the screen. A little further to you and me. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking about moving down because I want this to be such a personal message tonight. Let me begin this argument this way. Inside the walls of the local church in America, there exists a creeping complacency which literally threatens the local church when the local church is threatened then the voice of the gospel is threatened if the voice of the gospel is threatened then the voice of good and right is threatened if the voice of good and right is threatened then the culture is threatened and if the culture is threatened Mankind is threatened. If you can see how those concentric circles go out, because if we are threatened as individual believers, then it's the church, then it's the voice of the, of the gospel, then it's the voice of good and right, then it is the culture, and then the individual, mankind is threatened to go to that place that we don't even like to talk, because then mankind has nothing but eternal damnation in their future. Now, when I say that, people uh, nod kind of nonchalantly <coughs> because it doesn't seem to be our, our problem. But I want you to think about this, folks. The average Southern Baptist church in the United States of America run 100 or less. Now, for all those who say, well, that's great. I love small churches. Well, it, the truth is it's not your decision as to what size a church should be. It's his. 
But watch this. Out of, out of churches, the average church runs 100 and less, and we know from one after another after another survey that the average Southern Baptist church, which already runs 100 or less, is either plateaued or declining. I think it is safe to say that somewhere along the line that we have lost our influence. The truth is, is that is that most churches don't even carry a good reputation within their community anymore. And those that do carry a good reputation in large measure just have the reputation among the community that they're very tolerant. I asked you this question, how different is that reputation from the reputation of the first century believers? They were not tolerant. They were militant against evil. And they operated by balancing. Are you watching? They operated by balancing the truth of God, uncompromised, and being led by the Spirit of God and supernatural works and exhibiting the love of God. That's how they operated. And the greatest need, the greatest need of the church today is not so I'm not misunderstood. The greatest need of the church today is not to have more members or more attenders. The greatest need of the church today is not for ministries to grow. Now watch this. Hear me out before you throw me out. The greatest need of the church today is not to reach the lost. Oops. Listen. If the church of today, this church, embraces and has the greatest need met... Higher attendance, expansion of ministries, and the laws coming to Christ will be an obvious natural outcome of us meeting, having that basic greatest need met. The greatest need for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is this, to be renewed in our spirits, to be revived in our souls, and to be revitalized in our service. It is time, as Peter writes, for judgment to begin at the house of God with the people of God. For the last eight or ten months, maybe a year, as you know, you've heard it, mentioned it this morning, I've been praying for, I've been searching, I've been seeking, I've been longing for the spirit of revival in this country and this place. In fact, I would be I would be elated if revival broke out. Here tonight, God moved down in glory. God moved away sin and he moved down in glory and from this place right now, Pleasant Ridge got revived. North Highlands got revived. Industrial City got revived. Peoples got revived because God chose to have a Pentecost. My I'll, let me say it in my terms. God chose to have a party here. Now, nobody really seems uh, um, seems at outs with that. Everybody kind of wants it. But let me tell you what's happened to me in the last eight or ten months. It seems like every conference I've been to, including the Southern Baptist Convention, it seems like every conference that I've been to, speakers I've listened to have the same message. We need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit of And so how does that happen? And, you know, in March, you guys very graciously sent us 
sent us to the Smokies for the refresh in the Smokies. And it was, a, it was a great time of refreshment and renewal and revival and confirmation, affirmation for me. But at that, at that meeting, I was introduced, go ahead, Cameron, I was introduced to a movement in America called One Cry. If you're on the Internet, go to onecry.com. It is a national call for a spiritual awakening, a spiritual revival. And we're going to take just a second and see two or three minute video. And here's what I want you to get from this. As you watch this and see all the things that are said, and I'll come back and we'll move forward from there, I want you to think about that dry, barren ground that you're seeing on the screen. I want you to think about it being the church today that has wilted down and then see that, what happens if that one drop of the Holy Spirit water fall on us? Go ahead.
Well, that's a question that's very telling. Will you join such a movement? That's the essence of Jesus' call. Jesus' call is to follow me. Where did he go? Do our lives, I just ask this question, do our lives reflect that we're following him? Back in January, I used this text that I asked you to turn to, Romans 13. It is so timely for me that I used it when I spoke to the ministers a few weeks ago, and I want to use it again tonight. Remember what it was? I'm just going to, we'll read it, and I'll just tell you what my points were. Besides this, Paul writes, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is over and the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual impurity or promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plan to satisfy fleshly desires. And my outline for this is that if you remember, it was in January. It's what time is it? Here's what time it is. It's time for us to wake up from the sleep. It's time for us to clean up as we get ready to work. It is time for us to dress up. Let us put on the armor of light and let us step up. And that's what I want to talk to us about tonight. You see, we need to do all those things because we live in perilous times. So, have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about your brand of Christianity? Have you ever thought about what you have in your Christian life? What you do, what you experience? Have you ever, um, have you ever asked yourself, is this all there is to the Christian life? I mean, did, did Jesus die so that we could come to a church on Sunday morning and sit in an air-conditioned building and sing really good songs accompanied by a really good choir and a group of musicians? Did we, did he die so that we could just come a couple of times a week, read our Bible and maintain the status quo? Or does God have something bigger for you and me and this church in mind? The question then goes to, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied in America with the impact the church is having on the culture? So then if you're not, are you satisfied with the impact this church is having in this area? And if you're not, then the question comes very personal. Are you satisfied with the impact you're having with the people in your sphere of influence? I remember the old song, old hymn, Jerry. I am satisfied with Jesus. But then the question comes to me as I think of Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me? So the real question is not, are you satisfied? The real question is, he's satisfied. The very reason that I am so taken with this one cry initiative is because As I've already said, 
It begins at the right place. I'm afraid in too many of our meetings. Now, understand that I am not talking about a revival meeting. It may come to that. In fact, the deacons and I discussed it at the last meeting, and I looked around for the guy that I felt led to, and he was not available, but I hadn't even told these guys. I'm trying to find someone who lead us in this spiritual emphasis, this renewal, to, to bring down glory. I have a real hero in the faith. His name is Manly Beasley. Manly, uh, uh, from, 70 to, from 1970 to almost 1990, he preached and ministered with seven diseases, three or four of them terminal diseases. Talk about a man of faith. I was privileged to hear him speak one time. Had him in the church. Went to this one cry meeting. Still have on my heart, God, who do you have for us that might bring a word and bring us out of the parched dry ground? And who is sitting on the other side of the table from me, Brother T? Manly Beasley Jr. And so we had a discussion about it. But may I say this to you, whether God sends manly, we, had, we did have a discussion about it, but whether God sends manly or not, here's what I'm going to tell you. We don't have to have somebody. It may involve a meeting, but it may not involve a meeting. But what I want is for what God wants for us. Because face it, folks, we are in deep trouble spiritually. We got fat bank accounts in the bank And we got a thin bank account, quite likely, in heaven. You know, during the the time of national disaster, the President of the United States has the ability to declare a state of national emergency. When he suspends, when he when he declares a state of national emergency, it it suspends business as usual, and it changes normal behavior, and it allows for the discharge of an emergency plan. And what I say to you tonight is, I believe that is where we are. Sovereignly, the church has the greatest emergency plan ever brought forth, but sadly, she either doesn't know how to or when to put it into place. Maybe it's a matter of the church just can't admit that it's time. It's time to wake up. It's time to clean up. It's time to dress up. It's time to step up. The kids today, and we don't have any here tonight, Cameron's up there. The kids today talk about um, on the movie Apollo 13 or the movie this or the movie that. Well, let me tell you something. I remember watching TV, and when it was told on the news, those frightening words of Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem. I want us to begin the next few minutes with a state of spiritual declaration of emergency. Go ahead, Cam, of emergency. I don't know that you can read it. I'd like us to read it together, and I'll have some copies here. I'll give you after the service, but I'm going to read it to you if you can't read it. If you can read along, that's fine. This is the declaration of one cry, declaration of spiritual emergency. With heavy hearts, we recognize that the church in America is in a state of spiritual emergency. Like the churches warned in Revelation, we have become lukewarm and compromised, and the light of our witness has grown dim. 
We confess that despite our access to more resources and biblical teachings than any other group of believers in history, we are not characterized by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge our lack of widespread impact for Christ on our lost and disintegrating culture. But God is waking us from our slumber and mobilizing us to pray earnestly for revival. Together we desire to travel the narrow road of brokenness, humility, and repentance. In desperation for God, we cry out for the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit in our day. We believe that true revival is the only hope to reverse our spiritual recession and enable us once again to display the beauty of Christ, Jesus Christ, and his gospel throughout the world. Because we believe that only Christ can save, heal, and revive, we pledge to turn in humble repentance from every sin God reveals to us. Pray with urgency for spiritual recovery and awakening. Unite with other believers in the spreading of the hope of Christ-centered revival. Lord, send a revival and let it begin in us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that first of all that you will reveal yourself in me and that I'll decrease and you'll increase. I pray the words that are spoken will not be my words but your words. I pray that the spirit that's felt will be like that of Pentecost. I ask you to do something like you've never done. I ask you to lay open our hearts to break down our pride and to work in that part of us that we kept hidden from you and each other for a long time. In your name. Amen. The last part of that pledge called us to do three things, turn, pray, and unite. Let's just think about those three things. This may not be as much of a sermon as it is a message, I hope. First of all, turn. Turn. Now, you know what turn is. The Bible word is repent. When he's turning going the opposite direction, it was the... It was the message of Jesus, it was the message of John the Baptist, it was the message of Peter, it was the message of Paul, and of others. It was Jesus' first word to the world, and it was Jesus' last word to the church. Repent. It is our call, that's what we have to do to be saved. You cannot be saved by just saying, oh, it's a good deal and I'll pray a prayer. You only are saved when you repent of your sins and you turn from your sins. In fact, this repentance has two turns. You turn from sin and you turn to Christ. And if it doesn't happen that way, it does not happen. 
We will never know the fullness of God. We will never know the joy of God until we turn from our sins and turn to Him. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. It's feeling sorry enough to get away from it, to flee immorality, to flee gossip, to flee uh, hatred, to flee holding grudges. If you go to Second Chronicles 7.14, it tells you in those verses, my people, not if those people, not if lost people, not the Sunday morning crowd, but if my people call by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and then seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. You see, we seek his face by turning from our wicked ways. If we're not going to turn from our wicked ways, we are not turning to him. And if we're not turning to him, we're going to hang on to our wicked ways, and God wants no part of it because repentance requires a change of mind and direction. A change. Not living life like we've normally lived it. A change. In one of the magazines, the revived magazines of, of the One Cry, the Life Action Movement, Dale Faisonville told this story of a guy named Vinko Bajeta. Anybody know that name? May not be pronouncing it quite right. Vinko. I'm just going to call him Vinko because I can't pronounce that, okay? Does anybody know who he is? Would it help you to know that he's a snow skier? You know who he is now? You want me to embarrass you and say, yeah, you tell me who it is? No, I didn't think you did. Here's who he is. You've all seen him probably dozens of times. ABC Wild World of Sports. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. You remember that poor skier wrecked going off that jump? It was Vinko. According to Dale is that what people don't know, according to Dale, what people don't know is that Finko didn't fall. He aborted the jump. This is the, this is the story as Dale writes it. He says that Vinko was on the top and the snow and the ice was falling. He had already jumped several, one time like 400 feet. And he knew right after he pushed off, that the ramp was too fast. And he knew that if he, that if he tried to jump, he would fly too far and miss the landing area. And that would have been death. And so instead of keeping going away that he knew was going to wind up in death or disability or destruction, he aborted. I can't confirm that. I can't deny that. But I'll tell you what, it sure does picture what repentance is all about. We keep going and doing the same things, committing the same sins, having the same attitude. We've pushed off the ramp of life and we find ourselves speeding down. We're picking up speed and our way has been littered by sin, causing us to be like a, a, a greased banister. And we, and we continue to go forward and we know this end is going to be bad, but we're faced with two choices to continue or change. And it doesn't take any effort to continue. We can just head right on into the arms of our enemy. Uh, and too many do that instead of change. And here's your takeaway, folks. 
If you're unwilling to repent, if you're unwilling to return, if you're unwilling to uh, uh, get your life right, God is unwilling. He's unwilling to what? Whatever you want to say. He's unwilling to send His Spirit to a sinful people. He is unwilling to fill cups that are already filled. He is unwilling to fill dirty cups. He calls us to turn. If there is going to be... I'm not talking about saving our way of life. I am talking about saving our kids, saving our grandkids. Whether or not this government survives or not, I don't think it's going to. Whether this government, whether this society survives or not, I want my granddaughter. I want my granddaughter to know him. And if she lives to have children, I want her children to have the opportunity to know him. And what we do in the next 10 to 15 years is going to determine the future. Dear God, we need a revival. And it begins with God's people turning and turning loose. Second thing he says that this thing says it's not just turn, it says pray. Pray. He's not talking about this Aunt Susie's hangnail and Uncle Tom's uh, uh, hair in her nose growing wrong and Sister Susie's eye, style in her eye. Now, there's a place and we should pray for sick people. I'm not making light of it, but I'm telling you, we have decided that we pray more people out of heaven than we do pray people out of hell. How long has it been since you fell on your face with tears in your eyes and cried for somebody that you knew was lost and were going to hell? When you think of praying, I think of, I think Brother Ray said it this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, Pray without ceasing. This speaks not of us being on our faces all day. Uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But it does speak with us having a desire to talk with him and we haven't carried an attitude of prayer. Let me just say this to us. If we carry an attitude of prayer all day long and we're communing with him all day long, some of us are going to have to clean up our language. Some of us are going to have to clean up our attitude. Some of us are going to have to clean up our action. Because, you see, God desires to walk every step with us and all we have to do is to desire it back. And when you pray, let me just offer you a couple of suggestions. When you pray sincerely, you're going to think I'm making fun. I'm really not making fun. But as a teenager, we could tell you what the leaders in our church were going to pray for. They were going to pray for the sick and afflicted. They were going to pray for the missionaries on home farm fields. And you had the faster you could say it, the more spiritual were home farm fields. Uh, you're going to play. Here's one that always got me. Those whom it is our duty to pray for. You've heard that. That's not the type of praying that the Bible speaks of. All those folks need to be prayed for. It needs to be in proper perspective. Let me just offer you three thoughts about your prayer life. First of all, when you go to the Lord, look inside. Look inside. And you begin by bowing before him. Bowing your heart, your head, your attitude, all that you are before Him. I, I deeply fear that too many people 
in the United States of America takes so for granted this thing called religious freedom that it's become a cultural event in our life and not a lifestyle for us. Surrender to Him. Bow before Him. You don't have to bow before Oprah or the TV or family. Or, you bow before Him. That's the first thing. Look inside. Bow your heart before Him. And then while you're bowing there, affirm to Him that, hey, God, as best as I know how, you're going to be the first priority in my life. You see, if we make Him our first priority, He will, he will help us to reject the pride that wells up in us. And that pride coming up in us gives us an inability to bow before Him, gives us an inability to admit our sins, gives us an inability to be right with Him, and it leads us ultimately to destruction. Then, okay, I bowed before Him. I made Him the top priority of my life. Then say, you know, God, whatever you show me in your Word, I'll do. I am convinced in this. In this room, in this room right here, there's enough Bible knowledge to save the entire world. I said it year, uh, several weeks ago that we have big, big hearts, fat heads, and dwarfed hands because we have so much knowledge. It's not how much knowledge we have, it's how much we apply. God expects us to do something with what we've learned. So you're in your praying, looking inside, you bow before him, you affirm his top priority. You affirm that you're going to do whatever the Bible says because the Bible is your guide. And now you're ready to confess your sin. Don't get caught in this trap that I got caught in as a teenager. Man, I sin a thousand times a day. It's hogwash. But I'll tell you what, you if you're a child of God, you know when you sin. You know when you sin. And how we respond to our sin speaks deeply to us. Are we ready to confess it and repent of it? I'll remind you that we're told in Galatians to walk in the Holy Spirit. There'll probably be a message about the Holy Spirit in a couple of weeks, about walking, leading the essence, the essentials. You see, I think we've left the Holy Spirit out of our lives and we said, okay, God, you got me saved. I can take it from here. But when we pray earnestly and we look internally to start with, it changes our perspective. After we look in, then we look up. Then we look up and we see him and, and ask God to have, here's something we need today, ask God to give us a healthy fear of him. I'm convinced today that there's not enough fear of God. I know how God could change that. All he'd have to do is appear. All he'd have to do is appear in his glory and his power and his majesty. We don't have a fear of it because we don't live in a kingdom. We live in a democracy. Everybody can flap their jaws, say what they want. Their opinion is good as the next. In a kingdom, there's only one opinion that matters, did he? And that's the king's opinion. And in fact, if you want to get outside in humanistic terms in a human kingdom, you want to uh, uh, cross the king, you wind up dead. 
He has matters of life and death in his hands. That's the king we serve. He had the matters of life and death in his hands. And when you, and when you ask him to give you a fear of him and you get a fear of him, you know what will happen? You'll become more afraid of him than you do what people think. Ask God to show you the depth of your need for him. Now, be careful when you ask him to show you the depth of your need for him. Because if he does, it's going to break down all the selfishness, all the self-sufficiency. Anything that starts with self, it's going to break it down in your life. It's going to break down your pride. Ask God to change your mindset so that prayer becomes your first option and not your last resort. How often we get in trouble and we go to the Lord and we have to literally say, I wonder if sometimes we have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, my daughter, my son, my husband, my wife, my mom, my dad, they're going through this and I need you. Oh, yeah, Lord, my name is Jerry. I know we haven't talked in a while. Hello? Our prayer... In the, in the New Testament, when the disciples got in trouble, they prayed. When they went to jail, they prayed. When they had great days, they prayed. In fact, everything they did, they defaulted to praying. Ask God to help you put all your hope in Him. Because the truth is, folks, today we have a lot of misplaced trust. Do you ask God, or do you trust God to supernaturally intervene in your life? Oh, Brother Jerry, that's for the pagans and the heathens and those guys around poles. So really, don't tell Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that. Don't tell Daniel that. Don't tell Noah that. God's the same yesterday, today, forever. And he can intervene in your life and in my life. And he'll do that if you ask him to use your life to bring him glory or fame. I don't care which word you call it. Might that be the... Biggest part of your life is to bring, point people to Jesus, bring glory to God. Seek His face. Seek it often. Look in, look up, and then look out. I believe clearly. Please listen. I've watched it in this congregation, how when people in this congregation have gotten closer to the Lord, all of a sudden they're talking to me about people out there. Hello? All of a sudden, let me just use two men. They don't know I'm going to use them. They can shoot me later. Teddy Rusby and Van Huey, about two and two years ago, we decided to cancel outreach. We didn't have any prospects. We're, we're here trying to fiddle it out. There were five or six men involved. We did away with it. Last August, before they were elected chairman and vice chairman of the deacons, they came to me and they said, Brother Jerry, we know why we did it. We agreed with it. But let me tell you, God has not let us rest. He's on our case. Am I telling it right, Teddy? Am I telling it right, Van? God is on our case. We've got to get out in the community. And now here we are 10 months, 9 or 10 months later, and we've seen ourselves touch 1,200 houses. Admittedly, the reaping, the harvest, hadn't been what we thought it'd be, but that's not on us. We have to be faithful, and then God will make us fruitful. I think we're just planting seed right now. Can I just offer you one other thing as you look out? That you need to see people who need the Lord.
If you see people through God's eyes, you'll see people, those who know the Lord, those who need to know the Lord, people inside your influence, people whom you've never met. You have to see the fields. And it is only when we become people of prayer that we will become people who are filled with the Spirit of God. It is only in prayer that we're going to find the Spirit of God. And it is only when we become people who are filled with the Spirit of God and live like Him and glorify Him and let people see Him in us. It is only at that point that we will become salt on this earth and the only time that we're going to create a hunger for God is when we become salt on the earth. I heard something interesting this week. It's not in my notes. That's okay. My notes were late coming. As you know, I wasn't prepared this morning. So let me just say this to you. Many of us are empty or low. If you were to take and put a real spiritual thermometer that measured your, spirit, your spiritual walk with Christ, it'd probably be subnormal. But please listen. There is a difference in being empty and being thirsty. My gas tank is empty quite a bit. Could I get an amen? But my gas tank ain't thirsty. Are you empty or are you thirsty? Are you thirsting for God to do something special through you? That means we have to turn from our sin, turn to him, and then pray. The third uh, item on this uh, commitment, Lord, we commit to you that we will turn. We commit to you that we'll pray. Watch this. We commit to you that we will unite. What a word. Unite. As far as I'm concerned, as far as I can tell, it's the most needed word in Christendom today, Christendom today and it's the most ignored word given to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 21st century in America, church unity is almost a joke. In fact, you go to a church, you talk about being church unity, and you'll get laughs. And I think the reason for this, many, I've watched it from a staff position for 35 years. And I suggest that the reason for lack of church unity in the church today can be, bar, can be parred down to lack of trust. We don't trust each other. Don't trust leaders. Don't trust pastors, which really reveals that we don't really trust God. Because if we trusted God, we would trust God. We would trust God to give us those who love him. Jesus said, love one another as I've loved you. And it is in this way that the world will know that you're my disciples. These sound like marching orders to me. In Acts 2, verse 1, it says, O King James, and when they were all together and in one accord and in one place, the Spirit of God failed. Failed. May I just say this to you? I sincerely believe that one of the reasons that we can't get in one accord is because we can't get all together in one place. 
We have this group this week, that group next week, that group next week. We got too much on our plate. The greatest need of the church is to be revived. And the factor may be that we can't get together, so we can't be together. I have a lot more to say about that, and I could run around it all night long. But nothing will be changed if we're too proud and if we're too prideful to let God change our hearts. If we're too proud to repent, to turn. If we're too proud to pray honestly. If we're too proud to really unite, there may not be much hope. This One Cry Initiative, I'm going to put these down here on front. These are those declarations we read. I challenge you to take one. Put a uh, uh, magnet on your refrigerator. Read it. It's not a new program. It's not a new ministry. It's a call to action. Faith is action. Go to read Hebrews chapter 11. And this action that we call for, and you're going to hear it particularly on Sunday nights throughout July. This call to action could be painful. When Vinko fell off that runway, he suffered a a minor concussion because he chose not to do the dangerous and the deadly. There may be pain involved in a change. You may have to turn loose of something you don't want to turn loose of. But without the change, there'll be no renewal. There'll be no reawakening. There'll be no revival. I want to paint you a picture as I end tonight. At the end of World War II, General Douglas MacArthur, we all know him well, represented the United States on the battleship Missouri as the Japanese soldier, a highly decorated soldier, represented the Japanese uh, army, nation, met him there. They gathered there for the ceremony of surrender. At the moment of the actual surrender, the Japanese soldier walked over to MacArthur and offered him his hand. And being the stern person MacArthur was, his hands remained at his side as he firmly, calmly said, Sir, your sword first. MacArthur never gave him his hand until the soul, until the weapon of warfare was surrendered. Because you see, until the weapons are handed over, the hostilities are still not gone. Before God will offer us his hand of friendship and pours out his spirit on us, 
the weapon of our sinfulness, of our selfishness, and our stubbornness. It's going to have to be handed over. It's his way or no way. The one cry is, it's time for us to wake up, clean up, dress up, and step up. You know there's a need. You know God calls us to this. So I ask you three questions and pray. If not you, who? If not here, where? If not now, when?